Let's get started with the Career Up Now Socially Distanced Podcast Series Israel Edition. Today I am with Judah Taub, the managing partner. For some people, they might not know what that means. So I'm coming from the background right now and other stuff, but can you explain what this means? Yeah, managing partner is the guy who doesn't do any of the work and has other people sort of. So yeah, managing partner means that you've got to manage the, typically in the VC, there's partners who are in charge of investing the money. So just to give an example of Chet, we see just over a thousand companies a year. We have a team of investment professionals with different backgrounds who are meeting these companies, running due diligence processes, and then investing in the few that we think are, are potential winners. And then really the only difference between a partner and a managing partner is whether you're trying to manage this system or your main goal is to be solely just investing the money. That makes sense. So I'm really just a manager of the whole firm. So let's talk about how your journey, you know, from start to finish, what's your background and how did you get to where you are today? With me, it was a bunch of coincidences and, and probably luck. My background, born in London, moved to Israel when I was very young, hmm. grew up in Israel, went through the, 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 the Israeli education system, including Yeshiva up north and joined the IDF. I was there for five years, classified units, running data projects, won an award there, moved to London after because I married Leia and my wife we dated while I was in the army I finished the army moved to London the goal was to move to London so she could finish her studies and then mm. I moved back she makes Aliyah that's actually what happened mm. so we made the plan and we stuck to it nice. um, <laughs> but, but during that during that period in London I, I started working for a fantastic hedge fund called Lansdowne Lansdowne Partners it's $20 billion long short discretionary fund I was very lucky to, to be able to join there I joined as the first data person and i was very lucky that during that period data just became much more important and i ended up sort of spending close to five years at Lansdowne. at the end of it i was, I was head of data and then after that decided to, to, to sort of start a vc it was an idea that came together thanks to two other individuals lord andrew feldman and stuart roden lord andrew feldman was previously the ceo and chairman of the conservative party and he ran that for, for a couple of years. Stuart Rosen was one of the leading fund managers at Lansdowne. So really my indirect boss and then chairman at the same time when I was leaving, he was leaving. And just the three of us coming together was, was brought on the idea of starting a VC. And that's how we launched Chetz. There's a number of things that we try and do differently in Chetz, which makes us relatively unique. But broadly speaking, just to answer your question, that, that's how I came yeah. to where I am today. So you did, so you, you've, you did the data just sort of not some kind of randomly used did data and IDF and that was super relevant skill set to learn in like what mid 2000s yeah 2012 yeah it's a great time and then then did you have to go to university or no you could just so I did that in parallel I went to IDC and Wharton okay so you did that while you're in the IDF no, I did that while I was just after the IDF and then towards the end of my time at the hedge fund. Got it. Oh, wow. Okay, cool. A lot going on. Okay, so it worked yeah. out. It's kind of, it makes sense, the trajectory. So, the, yeah, anything with data is just like gold nowadays. You know, talk, you talked about your trajectory and where you went. And I'm curious, you know, were there any like major failures or mistakes that you made along the way that taught you something that you think about today that has changed you for the better today? Are there any, any particular moments for you? Mistakes, loads. Like really a lot, but I've definitely learned from different managers that I had along the way. I was very fortunate in the army and then at Lansdowne to have bosses that really taught me a lot about how they treated both the people below them and empowered them to sort of grow. Mm -hmm. My fault, one of, and this is probably my most 
my luckiest, the most fortunate part of my journey was to have in the army and then later on at Lansdowne, sort of individuals who basically said, you're, you're, you're going to need to experiment to succeed. If you have an idea, run with it. We might sort of try and test this idea to make sure it's somewhat sensible. But by and large, you're in a place where we've chosen you to be here because we think that if you run with ideas, overall, you will succeed. So just to give uh, two examples, in the army, I was in a very unique unit where when I had an idea of how we could run things differently, they were like, okay, how much would this cost? How many people do you need? How long would you be able, would it take you to come back with results? That is the complete opposite of most militaries in the world. Mm. And that's what led sort of two and a half years later to an award-winning idea that, that revolutionized a big part of the way we think about solving certain problems. And then later on at Lansdowne, also, it was very much a ecosystem where if you have an idea and it makes sense and it might generate value and people think like it's not completely crazy, so obviously there's certain boundaries, but, but by and large, the thesis is let's get really good people and then just give them a lot of freedom to do what they think is best. And in those types of environments, I was very fortunate to, to to sort of be able to grow. Yeah, that sounds pretty awesome. Just like not not unlimited resources, but relatively like a lot of resources and just good, some really skilled people. Kind of reminds me of the same thesis of like, I mean, I'm not sure if this is relatable, but I've heard the same thing about like Bell Labs, where it's just like all these really smart people together and just like unlimited resources. I wouldn't even say it's unlimited resources. It was just like the fact that in both of these organizations, I was, I was given a lot of freedom. Freedom. And that meant doing, making lots of mistakes. But the freedom means that you can make mistakes and that you know that you will make mistakes and that's okay. And, and then over time, hopefully you, you, you will learn from these mistakes and be much better than you would have been if there was a clear sort of border that, that you can't cross. Got it. That makes sense. That's, that's great that you had that freedom. I think a lot of people, it's hard for them to fail and like and not have much consequences. So that's, that's really good. By the way, it's probably one of the most important traits for a VC as well. Right. So if you try and play it safe, then you will, that is probably a fantastic formula for having poor returns to your LPs and consistently poor returns to your investors. I've frequently speak to other partners and people at other VCs and we speak very openly and I sometimes hear the frustration from some of them where they say that ultimately whether it's our bosses on the other side of the pond or just the internal structure is that if you don't do well on sort of two investments sort of you're cut or you're looked down on in a, upon in a very serious way and as a result they skew their investment process mm. to, to be very risk averse and in a VC environment that's probably the worst thing that you can do. If you look at any sort of data on which VC succeed, everything will show you that having sort of eight out of 10 winners is not what's important. What's important is to make sure that when you do have a winner, two winners out of 10, three winners out of 10, these are massive winners. Right. If you end up making sort of two X eight times out of 10 and the other two you write off, that's reasonable. That's not great. It's actually quite poor, especially if it takes you sort of seven, eight, nine, 10 years to, to, to return that to your piece. Right. But if you have three companies or two of them that do sort of a thousand X, then you're making serious money. You're only going to hit those if you're in this somewhat free environment. And it's one of the things that we do, which is very different at HET. All the employees, even the guys who are sort of younger, sort of the titles maybe are not as fancy. The point is, if they have an idea, or if they have an investment that they're keen on doing, they should run with it. We may at the very end sort of make a decision against it, but the, but the basic idea is they can take any resource they want. They can run with any company they want. They can collect whatever data sets they think will prove that this company is likely to succeed. We're very informal. You can join any meeting you want partners meetings, sort of decision-making, the investment committees. And we see a lot of fruit coming out of that already today. 
That's awesome. It makes sense too. I mean, it seems sort of, I mean, to me as an outsider, it seems fairly like that should be the way you do it. It's, it's kind of hard to believe that mm -hmm. there's a lot of people that don't do that. Yeah. So it's very different to, 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 to the way it usually works. Interesting. It's traditional, very traditional. It's like, yeah, there's like a very strict and yeah. like, so I'll give another example. One of the unique things about RVC is it's a little bit of an upside down pyramid. So the people who are actually running the VC, making most of the decisions are the younger people. It's the people with the tech skills, the people who see entrepreneurs firsthand. But we do have some amazing people, part of the team, um, really super. Uh, you can look at them on our website, but, but every single one of them could easily raise a fund by themselves, which would be huge and oversubscribed overnight. Um, but they've joined the team because they think this is the way VC should work in, in 2020. And so they're advising us, we're utilizing them when we feel like we need them. And it's very much an upside down VC, traditional VC in that sense. But we think this is, this is what, what's needed in, in 2020 looking forward. Definitely. I agree with you. Are there any, I mean, kind of going back to the question we had earlier are, you know, are there any particular like core values that you use in life sort of maybe principles that you use so, oh, there's, there's obviously a lot of values i'd say one of them is, is you need to make sure you treat people with respect and that you're very sort of honest and transparent it's also something that's very clear and unfortunately very different to, to a lot of other venture capital firms so just to give an example we're meeting a thousand companies a year, probably more, 1,200 last year. So it means that we are constantly saying no. Out of 1,200, we ended up investing in five. So 1,195 times we said, this is not relevant for us. Sometimes when you're doing that, you can get very pompous. You can maybe not treat the entrepreneurs as they should deserve. And we go out of our way to try and make sure that we're giving them honest feedback. Why did we pass? Why we think maybe somebody else could suit them better? What could they have done differently that maybe would have made us more interested? It takes a lot of time to make sure we do this in the right way, but we're benefiting from that. So today, I would say 30 or maybe 35% of our deal flow comes from entrepreneurs that we said no to who are recommending to their friends, go meet the guys at Chet. They'll give, like, they may say no, but you'll get an honest answer. They'll be transparent with you. They'll be upfront. They'll say, look, this is wrong for us go try these funds, they're more relevant, or come back in six months. We'll try as much as possible to give them feedback, which may be wrong, but this is at least what we thought. Yeah, that makes sense. You want to have that organic word of mouth about you guys. To, it's basically just free advertising if it goes. Yeah. Really, that makes total sense. Yeah, so three out of the last six companies we invested in also were referred to us by this type of method. We can see material. It was something we started off with as a value. Mm -hmm. We believe in it. And it's now something we're actually materially benefiting from. But we did it because, to your question, we as a team and Judah, myself, believe in it. Yeah, that's awesome. I try to operate the same way, just in life, is how to respect people. And sometimes it can be hard. Not hard, hard, but when you're like emotional, sometimes you can get that way. But you got to step back and realize like it's all, we're all trying to do the same thing. I just try to be happy and successful. On the topic of Israeli edition, we wanted to cover some things about Israel. And one of the questions was, what's a lesson that you learned in the IDF that impacts you today? And that's a hell of a lot from what I can understand <laughs> for you. I mean, that's like your career is based around the stuff you did at the IDF. Would you agree? Yeah. So one of the questions that I was asked a lot is how Israelis post-IDF compared to, for example, guys in the US after their college degree. Usually it's similar ages. Also, when I was in London, I was meeting a lot of friends who were similar age to me. They didn't have the IDF background, but they had some fancy degrees that they might have got from Cambridge and Oxford. And, and it's very interesting to see the differences. I think what the IDF provides, which is really unique, 
is very, very practical skill set. And usually, and if you're in the right places, it's coupled with cutting edge technology. But I, I think actually the practical skill set is the, is the very relevant part. And when you speak to Israelis, when, they're inter- when we interview at Chet, just to give an example, our last hire, for our last hire, we got 320 applicants. We interviewed about 35 of them and we, we chose Moran, which is phenomenal. But the, the point is, a big part of it is what people do in the IDF. And it's actually more important sometimes than what they studied afterwards in university. And you could see the skill sets they bring to the table as a result of it. It's these soft skill sets sometimes, which are very difficult to quantify. But if you know that somebody's been through a very intense environment where they were able to pull through and maybe manage large team problems in real time, that tells you a lot about the person sometimes more than a degree would. So, so I just, I'm not saying which one's better or worse, but it, it's something that is very unique about the Israeli ecosystem, something that definitely helped me a lot and something that I think Israeli sometimes benefit greatly from. Yeah, it makes total sense. I feel like in university role, you're learning, but you're not practicing much of anything. You practice a little bit, but it's never like, I don't know. I can't imagine it's like the IDF at all. That It's like so much more serious. It's like real, like real life experiences, like crazy situations. And like, you don't get that in university unless you really don't. Yeah, well, I would just add that the IDF is very different to, to most other militaries. So I remember meeting a whole bunch of guys from, from West Point, and I was asked to give them a sort of a short talk about how the IDF differs from the way they work. And I was speaking to them beforehand to try and get different ideas. And I remember at one point turning to all of them, and there's probably about, I don't know, 50 or 60 officers in the room. And I said to them, how many of you, and this was about 10 years ago, I said to them, how many of you on the last election voted Democrat? And sort of nobody raised their arms. How many of you come from any of the following states? And I named a whole bunch of states. And the answer was none of them. But how many of you, one or both your parents served in the military? And basically everybody raises their arms. In Israel, it's completely opposite. The point I'm making here is a lot of the culture clash and how you sort of manage teams from very different backgrounds, you find in the IDF. Within sort of 10, 12 people, the chances are you will get a very even or somewhat even, excluding very specific parts of society, but you'll get a relatively interesting blend. And watching how these people bring their sort of childhood, their their youth, what they've learned together is something that then is very relevant when you go and work in a big tech company or when you go and and sort of manage a team later on. Sometimes this multiculturalism in the IDF, I think it, it also makes it unique. It's not just the military aspect, I would say. Hmm, interesting. Yeah, yeah, that, I didn't realize that. It's hard for me to really understand what it's like, because I, I associate the military here with pretty much male-dominated, and it's like, it depends on the time period, but it's a lot of, like, people who want to just go, like, they're there to fight, and that's, like, what they want. It's, like, it's a by-choice thing here, right? At least right now. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, so just give another example. Over the last six months during COVID, suddenly we needed ventilators in Israel, like most other countries. How are we going to create ventilators very, very quickly? And the answer was, there's a bunch of people who had ideas, who, who were put in touch with previous army officers who can manage this process. I was a CEO for a company building a ventilator for, for two and a half months between February and, and April. And I say CEO, I was running a small team. But point is, very quickly, the army took these pieces and started building ventilators. Before you knew it, over the weekend, there was 30, 40 officers working on a bunch of different prototypes in parallel. This would not happen anywhere else in the world. The way the army works sort of March, April was much more similar to the way probably Tesla worked in the US. And they were the ones coming out with the ventilators. There. There's no way that the West Point sort of thinking would have generated that. I'm a big fan of the idea, but it's definitely something very different about the culture and the way, the way they think. 
Yeah, it's funny. I actually was working at Tesla, not when that happened, but I was working there right before. I have a lot of friends that were actually working on the ventilators there. Like they just came through and did it. So yeah, it sounds kind of similar attitude to Tesla actually is like just come together and build stuff. It's, it needs to be built and it's like very scrappy. And there's actually a lot of veterans there. And mm. also from the, I, wow. I met, when I was there, I actually met a couple of people from the IDF as well. And they were, had similar viewpoints to you, I think. Fantastic. I guess like one or two more questions here. If a college student or a young professional wanted to come to Israel or, or is going to go to Israel, what would you give them for advice? Just come as quickly as you can. <laughs> run. Run it. Run as fast as you can. Yeah, there is a notion that if I just stay abroad for another year and get an extra diploma of some sort, then when I move, it will be much easier. I'll be able to move into some sort of better position in Israel. Rarely is that the case. When my parents moved to Israel, they moved to Israel and they had to take a very big step down or cut to, the, to at least their, their way of life in theory, because the economy wasn't anything like it. It was today and the job opportunities. But if you're young, sort of just out of college, early 20s, even 30s in the US. The opportunities in Israel, in my opinion, are just as good, if not better. And the quicker you come and just go to your first sort of job, and then six months later, you'll probably say, actually, I want to try something completely different. That's great. In Israel, probably the country that is most open to the idea that people move around and are flexible with the way they think about their careers. Rarely have I seen situations where staying longer in your home country before moving to Israel has paid off. Usually the other way around is very much the case. Interesting. It's really interesting about this whole idea of flexibility. So I'll give you an example. If you were in the US and you had a failed startup, definitely in the UK, but also I think the US is very big, so it's hard to quantify. Chances are when you're sending your CV out or building your next business, you're going to try and cover it up. You'll say, I was actually doing this. It was a nonprofit. It was something else. It wasn't my idea. It was my friend's idea. I joined it, whatever. In Israel, chances are you'll write it in big, bold letters. This was my startup. It failed. Now I'm a second time entrepreneur. You should be paying double. Like that would be the notion. It's a completely different sort of, and the reality is, I prefer that. I'd love to understand why it failed as a VC. Let's talk about it. You've probably learned a lot from it. It's probably made you better. Yeah, the, the flexibility here is, is very high in that sense. Hmm, that's pretty intriguing. I did not know that. Interesting. That's cool to know. I actually learned a lot here. I realized that Israel was like, I've been to Israel once, but for a very brief amount of time, and I didn't realize the ecosystem was like this. It's pretty intriguing. Maybe after... Well, COVID thing makes things a little more complicated, but I don't know. I, I'm considering consider coming by. I mean, it sounds like an injury. I just graduated college last year. What did you study? Mechanical engineering. So then you're perfect. <laughs> oh, thank you. <laughs> okay. This has been a really cool talk. And uh, I want to thank you for the wisdom. And I, hey, I, I think that you other young adults will find it useful and you know learn about Israel and also just about life. So this was really interesting. And I thank you for coming on, Judah. Thank you. Thank you very much.